Breaking the stigma of addiction. This is Zach's life, a story of love, addiction, loss, grief, and recovery. Reflecting on Zachary Horton and others in our community, both, both inside, inside and outside of their addiction. addiction. Hosted by Jim Horton of the Zachary Horton Foundation. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm here today with Michael Pritchard and... Uh, Michael works uh, with the county uh, of Fresno. Uh, I'm going to let him. Michael, tell our audience again. I've, I've had you on a couple of times, but tell your, our audience again exactly what you do with the sure. county. So my primary job is with uh, Fresno County Department of Behavioral Health. I'm an analyst over uh, substance use disorder prevention contracts currently. I'm also a drug and alcohol counselor. I've been in the field for about 12 years, worked in a variety of different uh, contexts, which if you listen to the former podcast, you can see me go through a longer introduction. But uh, yeah, primarily uh, I, I work to help, you know, re reduce stigma, prevent substance use, help people get connected to substance use and educate the public on substance use disorder. So Yeah, and, and let me say this. I'm, I'm just going to guess that Michael's forgot more about the field of addiction than most of us will ever know. I mean, he is an encyclopedia, so that's why... Uh, this is going to be a whole different uh, day and 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 topic, uh, and this whole discussion line. So usually I'm I'm interviewing families, I'm interviewing people, I'm I'm talking about their story, I'm relating it to to Zach's story, uh, and uh, t today we're not going to have any of that. We're going to have uh, uh, Michael and I are going to have a discussion. Uh, we've got a cup of coffee in front of us. Uh, so you uh, may hear us drink our coffee, and we're just going to uh, go back and forth, and we're going to talk about harm reduction today and, and what that means and uh, just the lively conversation that uh, he and I had before we uh, went on air about it uh, lets me know that this is going to be uh, an, an exciting time. So uh, anyway, hey, sit back and eavesdrop on our conversation, and uh, hey, let's get started. So so Michael, just... Uh, oh, you know, let's start with the definition. So you have a definition from SAMHSA and yeah. tell people who SAMHSA is just in case. they don't. Yeah. The, the, um, substance, uh, substance abuse and, and mental health service administrations is, is, um, the federal government agency that kind of, um, oversees a lot of, um, you know, so you can go to SAMHSA.org and you're going to get, yeah. that, that's, that's where they, yeah, it's the, the, that's the, that's the department, I guess, that the government, puts all their money into in figuring out. Well, they funnel the money f through SAMHSA to, to the states and then in, into the counties. And so they, they, they oversee, you know, uh, you know, primarily oversee substance use and mental health services in the public sector. Okay. Um, primarily and, and prevention services too. Um, so a lot of um, the county funding comes, you know, through, through that organization. Okay. So. And, and tell me what is their definition of harm reduction? Yeah, so, so their harm reduction, and it's actually very long, but they say, and, and I'll just read the shorter part of it, they say that harm reduction is an approach that emphasizes engaging directly with people who have substance use or uh, who use drugs to prevent overdose and infectious disease transmission, improve the physical, mental, and social well-being of those served, and offer low-threshold options for accessing uh, substance use disorder treatment and other healthcare services. Okay. All right. Now, um, let's break that down. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, probably have to get, get through a, a little, his, a little history of this. So, so historically, um, you know, 
in, in America, we've had, we have, we've had an abstinence based approach to, um, to, to substance, uh, uh, substance use disorder. In other words, um, and, and this really came out of, I think the 12 step movements, um, prior to 1935, there wasn't, there wasn't really anything, uh, 1935 is when AA started Alcoholics Anonymous. And prior to that, um, th- there wasn't a lot of hope or help for people with, with any kind any form of addiction. Right. right. So, so, um, Alcoholics Anonymous started and it's really a, a, a spiritual program, um, based on spiritual principles. And it, it really was an, an abstinence based approach. Well, that, that eventually morphed into the social model, uh, programs that we saw, you know, in the, in the 19, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s until, until recently, um, which I'll explain, but, um, it was, it was really, you know, one person helping another, um, social model with, it was kind of, a, a um, there were some models developed around. It was kind of a, a cookie cutter approach to, to dealing with, with people that, that had addictions and, and mostly in these programs, what was done is, is, you know, the 12 steps of recovery, some well, group and, sessions, and- some counseling sessions. And, and, and it was, it, it was really effective for a lot of people. And that's still, it's still part of the treatment industry today. And, and the importance of meetings cannot be, cannot be overstated. However, um, you know, w- the abstinence approach to where, um, y- you know, you didn't enter recovery until you were completely off all drugs and alcohol. Um, like th- that was kind of the philosophy now we, the harm reduction approach. So, ca- okay. So, so l- let me stop you there and sure. say, so that still to a large extent, okay. In my mind, cause I, and now I'm going to, sure. I, I am going to mention Zach's name because I remember when, so Zach went into treatment, he went through medical detox. And as soon as that was done, now he was drug free. He got his first chip. Went to an AA program. Thirty days later, he had thirty days clean and sober. He got his thirty-day chip. Right, that was there. So he, that was he was still thought of at that point until he relapsed. Right, that he was that that he was working a, a recovery program. He was in recovery. Yeah. Now, as soon as he relapsed, then, I mean, his his group that he was with. Uh, he was no longer clean and sober. Yeah. Okay. Now go ahead and continue. I mean, yeah. well, so, so that's still how we think. That's still how we think. Okay, yeah. But I mean, it's, it's not, in, it's not entirely untrue. If you say if, if somebody's using drugs again, they're not clean and sober, but that doesn't necessarily mean they aren't still in recovery per se. Does that make sense? There's a difference. So, so there's a difference in being in recovery yeah. and being clean and sober. Okay. I'll give you, I an, can, I'll, I'll give you an example okay. how, uh, of how this works. So, so um, there was, there was a real hiccup for a long time with um, with uh, medically assisted treatment, so so methadone treatment, for example, um, where people um, would say that they're on an opioid, even though that that opioid is is a long acting opioid. They're not chasing their heroin anymore. They're on one dose a day. They're under the care of a physician, and and they're able to um, function in life on methadone. People, a lot of people in in these movement would say. Um, they're not clean and sober and therefore not and, in and recovery. I've, and I've heard that. Correct. I've heard that. I've heard that sitting in meetings and in support groups, yep. I've, I've heard that people on methadone, it's almost like they're just as bad as someone yep. who's still using heroin. Yeah. So, 
so if somebody says, well, are, are, you know, that they're not clean and, and sober, well, I mean, they could make an argument with that by saying, well, they're still on an opioid, so they're not clean and sober. Okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean they aren't in recovery because recovery, anytime, and, and I said this to you earlier, uh, you know, in conversations is um, recovery is anytime somebody with a substance use disorder takes a step toward doing something positive for their own health even if they're still contemplative about like completely giving up drugs, they, they really entered the beginning stages of recovery. Um, and And that's how I understand when the things that I've seen uh, that I've read about harm reduction, Mm -hmm. when that term first came to me was exactly the way that you explained it there, that, that taking a positive step toward the recovery process yeah, taking taking a step. So so for example, um, you know, if if somebody's an IV drug user and they're out there, you know, sharing needles or they're um, they're they're out there using drugs on the street and and they say, you know what, um, I'm I I'm not ready to give up drugs and alcohol, but I definitely don't want hepatitis C or HIV. So I'm going to go and engage the needle exchange, and I'm going to exchange my needles and get clean needles. And in doing so, I'll probably talk to the doctor and maybe get some information about treatment if I want to go. That they're 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 um, really they're they're making steps toward their own care with with the needle with getting clean needles, but they're also exposing themselves to information to where if they ever decide that they want to engage like treatment options, they can, and that's a that's a step toward recovery. So it's recovery is broader then, um, you know, the way we look at it now, the way, the way we used to look at it. But, but Michael, what do we say then? And, and, and I'm not saying that I disagree sure. with that. So I'm going to play devil's sure. advocate here sure. in, in a lot of things. And, and sure. one of the great books that, that you referred me to that I read in the realm of, of Hungry Ghosts uh, was just, just tremendous. And some other books that I've read on that same topic, you know, so we follow this line of thinking. So we make clean needles available so they're not damaging themselves and, and they do get some help through that, sure. through that process. Well, then a, a lot of these places that, then the next step is, you know, now you're going to give them a, you're going to give them a, a, a place under doctor's care and watch that they can even administer their own drugs. And then some countries even give them yeah. the drugs. Now, okay, granted, it's a clean drug that we know that doesn't have adherence in it. It's not going to be laced with fentanyl. Right. Right. And so we're so. At some point, and, and, and here's the argument, if you're giving carried to its furthest extent, I'm, you're giving them clean needles and you're giving them clean drugs, why wouldn't everyone just become a drug user then? Yeah. You're just making it too easy. And now the next time we're going to have Narcan for everybody, so now they can't even get hurt. So we're giving out Narcan. So, hey, come to a party. We have Narcan. We have drugs. We have yeah. free needles. You know, like there's going to be a line out the door. I, I mean, that's the... Yeah, uh, so... So I think that is a misconception. I mean, working with people who, who, and I'm in recovery myself from, you know, opioid, uh, if it, if it wasn't for, um, if it wasn't for, um, you know, if it wasn't for, and, and I didn't get my, so I used methadone to taper myself off of opioids, uh, to okay. taper myself down, um, at various points. And, um, I didn't get it legally. So I'll just say that I didn't get it legally. But I was self-caring because I, I was trying to quit on my own, right? Um, I think a lot of people who are out there in their addiction actually 
want to quit and do better, but they just may not be ready at that point. And so like harm reduction just takes an approach to where we're just going to meet people where they are. And, and, and we're just going to like, yeah, the, the end result in Michael's perfect world, everybody would be chemical free and happy. Right. Um, but, but it, I can't impose myself on other people and make that happen. There's a whole process that people go through to, to enter recovery and process, you know, get through the process of recovery. And that was the case. I went through eight drug treatment programs, tons of medical detoxes. I had to have a a, a lot of failures. I wasn't clean and sober through in and out of a lot of that, but that I, I view that whole period of my life as my recovery process to get to where I'm at today right? Was I clean and sober through the whole process? No, but I was, it was a learning process. And during that time, um, maybe I didn't want to be completely opioid free because I, I, um, you know, I didn't want to go through a a lot of withdrawals or try to cut cold Turkey. So I would use uh, lesser or long acting opioids so that I can function in life. And some of the functional impairments that were going on in my life, that's just, functional impairments is just problems that happen as a result of your addiction, would disappear for a period of time because, and I had entered into recovery in a way um, towards self-care, but I wasn't clean and sober yet. So I like to use the term gradualism. And I've heard this <laughs> rather before. Than har- rather than harm reduction. I don't like that term, harm reduction. So, but- so tell us when, when you say gradualism. Give us uh, yeah, an operational definition. Yeah, so gra- gradualism would just be anytime you take a step towards your your own self care, um, and in in bettering your life and trying to you know reach the ultimate end of 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 what you want to accomplish in life. For I think a lot of people that are out there in their addiction eventually realize that like okay, I just need to be off all substances and be abstinent in order to do this. Well, it took a long time for me to get to that point, but I eventually got there, but I didn't start there. It was years and years of process to get through that. So I gradually, I started here, but gradually eased my way there. And so the more you are expose yourself to any form of, of service out there, that's going to give you information, help you start thinking about change. um, To me is, is movement towards your own recovery. Okay. Can, so, can you can and, and you there's see... a lot of people out there that are gonna that would disagree with me on this, but I've had a lot of talks with like you know people that have been in the field a long time. I, I've had talks with our you know our CEO at, at CCAP, uh, California um, Consortium of Addiction Programs and Professionals, who does largely a lot of the advocacy toward this, and and we both like that term gradualism because you know harm reduction in a lot of people's mind it, it gives the impression that like oh. Um, we're kind of giving up and harm reduction is this is pretty much as good as we can get for somebody. And it feels like we're giving up and, and not really wishing oh, the okay. ultimate best for them. And, and so because of that, people kind of don't like the, a lot of people don't like the term harm reduction. I personally don't, don't, don't like the term harm reduction because some people take it like that, but it's still readily used. There's no, nothing wrong with using it. I just prefer to use like, you know, gradualism or, or moves people making moves toward their own self-care. Okay. Can you see how a family, especially the family members mm-hmm. of someone struggling with substance use disorder, how because of the, the trauma that's, that's, uh, that's been brought to their family yeah. in, in, in dealing with their loved one, can you see how uh, gradualism or harm reduction yeah. doesn't bring an answer to them? Yeah. Damn it, they want it fixed. Yeah. Now. Yep. Get her done, baby. Yep. Right? 
that's what we have the, the program for is 28 days. Let's, let's get it done. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, you're off the drug. You know, you're, you're, you're detoxed. Let's, let's move on. Right. I, I mean, and I, I mean, I say that kind of facetiously because that's what I believed. Yeah. Right. I mean, I see that that's not the case now. I don't know that, uh, as, as a, as a family member of someone who is addicted, I don't know how much I could have supported that if I had had that option. Uh, I mean, now hearing it, reading about it, if I had had three years to process that information, like I have, you know, in the last three years, then, then all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But, but, but so, so, so talk to that family, you know, right, right now, you know, that's in the middle of that saying, you know, I, I don't, I don't want my loved one to have just a little bit of help. I want them to have it all the, all, I want it to be done. Yeah. I, I, I want to preface it by saying this is that, um, you know, <laughs> I, I have preferences for people too, and they're pretty much the same as everyone else. Like I, I want people to be, um, operating, uh, you know, people to get, clean and sober like I have with 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 no you know chemicals um needed to support their life um you know or, or them feeling they need it to to get by you know because people use drugs not just for the positive benefit because it's escapism too right I want that for people I I I would I would agree with everyone else that the end objective would be the hope that everybody could be completely without this but in reality we're dealing with a person who has to be ready to make those steps, right? So and maybe harm reduction or gradualism really puts, I mean, it really does put the ball back in their court because they're in charge of their recovery. Yeah. To so, a so let's extent. say, let, let's say somebody, um, and, and, uh, let's say, let's say somebody is, um, you know, using opioids at high levels, like, you know, heroin, may, maybe, maybe they're even addicted to, to fentanyl. Maybe they're addicted to, to painkillers. And, um, you know, when we look at the, the 11 criteria, diagnostic criteria for, for, for addiction, what we're looking at is, is, is loss of control over the use of the drug, impacts on relationships, giving up things they used to enjoy. We're looking at, um, these are all symptoms like, you know, um, you know, put, putting themselves in, in hazardous situations, you know, continuous craving, tolerance and withdrawal and all these other things that come with it, right? But let's say we take that person and we give them, instead of them chasing, um, you know, short acting opioids that only last like three or four hours and then they have, they feel like they have to go get, get the drug again. What if we give them, uh, an opioid that lasts 24 hours, they can take once a day and it cuts craving and stops withdrawal. And then they're able to work, take care of their families, their relationships with their family stabilize. And essentially all of the symptoms that, 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 that gave them a diagnosis for, for substance use disorder to begin with, begin to diminish because they're on this one long-acting opioid all day long instead of a bunch of short-acting opioids where they're ripping and robbing and, and doing, every, you know, causing all kinds of community chaos, right? That was the idea around it is that we want to, if they're not ready to give up opioids entirely or they've tried and they keep relapsing, okay, well, let's give you a medication that can cut craving and stop withdrawal so that you can, um, you know, function in life and some of these impairments and life problems will begin to diminish. Well, 
if you're giving somebody a long-acting opioid and some of those symptoms that diagnosed you in the first place are now gone, we can say that that person's in recovery, can't we? Wow. So, so, so it, so we, we, so it used to be like, if, if you're, if you're not completely abstinent and clean and sober, then you're not in recovery, but under the medical model, um, it's a diagnosis and there's 11 criteria and the degree to which those 11 criteria, uh, uh, those functional impairments are either active or inactive. We can say somebody either is, is, um, addicted and, or having a substance use disorder, or some of those have been resolved and now they don't, they aren't exhibiting these symptoms anymore. And now they're in remission. Hmm. So you can be in remission from a substance use disorder and be on buprenorphine and be on methadone, right? Some people access those medications, for example, um, and they, 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 they access them to detox and that detox is very short. And some people stay on them a while, six months and slowly taper off that way. And then there's some people that never get off of them. But if they're able to function in those, those functional impairments that are characteristic of substance use disorder aren't manifesting, are they not still in recovery? Well, and see, <laughs> it's my, a Michael, shift it, in thinking, right? Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're treating this like a disease. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and and again, that's I'm 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 big on drawing those on drawing those parallels, you know, and and I I think about you know I think about myself and in, in one of my one of my last checkups with the doctor a, a, a couple of years ago during a physical. And he said, Hey, Jim, your cholesterol numbers are, you know, are X, you know, now we can put you on a statin. Right. You know, uh, but once you start that, you're going to be on that, you know, forever, you know, forever, Yeah. you know, or, you know, you can change your diet, you know, and change your, you know, well, yeah. You're telling someone in his late fifties that he's got to change his diet. He's got to change only everything you do mm-hmm. in your life, the way that you've been doing it the last 20, yeah. 30 years. So, I was able to make those changes because I really didn't want to be on that. But, but you know, there's a whole industry, right, based around, you know, these, uh, you know, statins and people being able to continue to live, to kind of live their, their life, you know, and, and not change. Now, some of those people are, have, have then made some changes, you know, and because they like being healthy, they like not having the feeling, and, it's, and, and some people don't. So it's still left up to them. Yeah, it's, right. Of it's, whether they're making mm-hmm. that, but but they're not dying. They're not dying, and 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 that's and that's the thing is like we're trying to um, d- do what somebody is willing to do, and trying to help them move, you know, you know, to toward whatever end in recovery that they want. To, because it's it's the overarching ethic in 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 addiction counseling is is um, really honoring somebody's right to self determination. We cannot. Impose I've heard you. Yeah, I've heard we, you say this before when yeah. you talk about dealing with other counselors in the addiction field that yeah. want to to mandate someone and and again because that's what we that's what we want. You can tell a cancer patient that they can't smoke cigarettes anymore, yeah, but they still may do it. Yeah, and, and, and we think it's foolish, and at the same time, it's like we, uh, you know we can't control it, and, I, and we're not giving up on them because if we were giving up on them, we we wouldn't be still promoting the idea that they should give up cigarettes. But, but at the end of the day, if they want to continue or if they only want to go uh, so far and they're satisfied with that, like I can't do anything about it. Do, do I, do I want that for them ultimately? No, but I don't want my preferences to kill people. And that's the bottom line. And I think a lot of times, um, and it, it, by the way, I mean, I wrestled with this for a long time. So I went through all of these treatment programs. I went through medical detox. Um, I got clean and sober through spiritual means in prison. And when I got out 
and and started to work in in the um you know just mentoring people and stuff like that i wanted everybody to have what happened to me happen to them right but right. that's not everybody's process and so um as i worked in the, in the field for for a while and really learned about like that that this recovery process has a lot of different paths and roads and and you know people are very uh you know, stages in their life and have experiences that like, and, and emotions are going through that, that may be similar to mine, but their story is not mine. I can't impose myself on people. I can make myself available. And so in the beginning, I was very, very opposed to a lot of the, a lot of, um, you know, what would be considered harm reduction now. And I was very opposed to even medically assisted treatment. I'm like, no, they can, you know, but, but then I wasn't really taking into consideration my own story and looking and looking at all of the things that I um, went through to actually get to the place where I was at that point, and remembering, like, you know, that you know, yeah, I got clean and sober ultimately this way, but I also had this long recovery process of of medical detoxes and 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 right. faith based programs and evidence based programs and all of these different things that didn't necessarily work for me. Well, maybe they will work for somebody else. Like I don't. So, so to and, me, and, and let's, and let's be clear that, yeah. that a, a lot of the treatment programs and recovery programs today, the people that are running those, the yeah. people that are the lead counselors, yep. the people that when you show up to an AA meeting, say they're celebrating their 10th, 15th, 20th, 30th birthday in, in the program, they don't have a, a mindset of what we have now too. And they look at it through their lens yeah. because that's how we all look through things is is through our lens. And when we hear something that's different, someone getting, maybe someone getting sober different, someone doing a different type of treatment that, that I've done, it challenges what I, perhaps is challenging what I think. And does that mean then if I accept what they're doing that I'm wrong in my thinking? Or or is it the fact that maybe not everyone gets to addiction the same way and maybe people get to recovery in different. Yeah. And I, I think, I think a lot of people are like, well, if I embrace, if I embrace this idea that people have the right to self-determination or this, you know, I don't like the idea of medically assisted treatment, but if I'm, if I embrace it, then I'm compromising my beliefs and, and therefore co-signing behavior that I don't think is right. Well, um, actually you have no control over their behavior anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so it's like, okay, you didn't let's cause it. You yeah, can't control it. You can't control you can't it. So, it. Yeah. so am I giving up on people? No, I, if, if somebody wants to like, you know, I've had people come into me for assessments and they're like, you know, I'm just going to go in and try to quit cold Turkey. And I'm like, okay, that has a low success rate, cold Turkey from opioids, for example, which right. it has a low success rate. But then I've, I've seen some people accomplish it. Right. Some people, um, don't, don't want to do it that way and stay on medically assisted treatment for a period of time. But the commonality between those is whether they're on medically assisted treatment or they're able to com stay completely abstinent is the functional impairments disappear either way. Right? So they're able to function in life. We may have a preference for the person who doesn't have substances in their system versus the person who is still on a medically assisted treatment. I'm just using this as an example. Harm reduction is very, there's a lot of uh, uh, aspects to it, but um, we may have a preference for that and say, ultimately we would like you to be stay clean and sober. But what if that person, when they get off of, of, of buprenorphine or methadone, the craving persists after they get off it for a period of time, they encounter some stress, they go back and use and they overdose what, and, and, and they die. Or what if, um, you know, they, they, um, 
they get off the drugs and then relapse back to their drugs and end up back in the same uh, spot that they were in before. And then, you know, that relapse is so discouraging. They never enter recovery again. Like, I don't want my preferences to kill people. I want to work with people um, where they are and, and give them, you know, all of the information that I can and, you know, the pros and cons of all of this based on my experience and my training and, and help them make the right decision for them. The other thing we don't talk about is that people, um, recovery is a dynamic process, right? Their mind may be here in the beginning stages, but a year into this process, they may change the direction uh, of where they want to go in their recovery. Maybe they, they um, are, you know, uh, they want to go uh, further or do something else in their recovery. And usually that happens because recovery is really discovery. It's, it's, it's growing as a person, right? right? right. It, it's well, the, especially when you're working with adolescents. I mean, we yeah. all, you know, the, very few people have the same job that they had at 16 or 17 once they're 25 yeah. or 30, right? They yeah. want to grow. They want to develop. Yeah. I think the word this really, you mentioned adolescence. I think this was really where it gets sticky and, and where I haven't really, and just being honest, um, where I haven't, um, you have people that are, that are uh, all for harm reduction and medically assisted treatment, high-end professionals in the field that are not for, leaving people on medically assisted treatment as adolescents for long periods of time. And, and I, 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 I have, I have, I have mixed feelings about that. I don't think it's the best approach either. I think that we can, we don't have to rapid detox them, but at the same time, leaving somebody on the, the youth, youth, uh, people that are young have the, have the ability to really rejuvenate <laughs> better than older adults, you know? And so, um, but if they keep relapsing and they're putting themselves at risk for overdose, it's better to be on that treatment than, than out there using short acting opioids that are going to kill you. So, yeah. so the, the jury is kind of out on that. And there's a lot of emotions around medically assisted treatment in adolescence, but you know, the, 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 this, you know, government, seems to be embracing that idea that, you know, it's better to have them on this and make it available for adolescents and let doctors make those decisions with, with the patients than, you know, than to us have a really strong opinion about it one way or the other. So I'm kind of, I have mixed feelings about it. I got through my detoxes pretty well as a teen when I, and, and as in my early twenties, but the craving persisted for a long time. So I think they took me off the opioids or the medically assisted treatment too quick if they would have slowly tapered me off over a few month period, I probably would have done a lot better and probably maybe wouldn't have relapsed because I would have been engaging recovery uh, for longer periods of time while I was, it kept me, it would have kept me engaged in the recovery right. process beyond the medication. If that right. makes sense. Right. Yeah. Huh? Well, and I mean, there's, there's so many different places. My mind is going now. Cause I'm, you know, again, I'm thinking back to my own, you know, circumstance with, with Zach and I'm thinking about how, how the insurance companies cut off his, literally they cut off his treatment mm -hmm. based on, based on, on uh, whether he was a danger to himself or others, which we know is a criteria for 5150. Right. He was literally discharged from inpatient because he no longer met that criteria. I mean, how insane is that? Right. When we think about it. So, uh, you know, I, I think that, that, these conversations are important. Uh, a lot of times I think at, at our level, and we can maybe discuss that next about, you know, why is just being open to a conversation like this? What kind of benefit can that, can that bring? But certainly at a discussion at a, 
you know, at, 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 in a political level, at, you know, higher up about, you know, uh, how, how we view, how insurance companies mm-hmm. view it, how, how we look at, at that kind of treatment, how those dollars are spent and how we can, you know, utilize those for, you know, for the health and the, and the care of, of, of people in treatment. But, but, and again, that's a whole nother thing. Again, all of a sudden my mind just clicked yeah. and I, and I ran there with it and I'm thinking, oh man, you know, it's, it's all well and good if, you know, you know, we're having this philosophical discussion about how great this is, but if the people that hold the purse strings, you know, to our treatment money aren't on board, then, then so, it really doesn't, then it really doesn't matter. No, agreed. Um, so for people that struggle with the harm, harm reduction approach, you know, um, th- there's a lot of different aspects to it, but, um, Jim, you and I have talked, I, th- I think you view me as a community asset, right? Absolutely. I couldn't be if I was dead, no. right? I couldn't be if I was dead. And I, there was, there was periods of time where, um, even getting illicit methadone saved my life because I was overdosing from short, short acting opioids, right? I probably wouldn't be here today if, if it wasn't for, um, you know, longer acting opioids that would have saved me, um, you know, fentanyl test strips, my, my save me, you don't ever know who's in recovery, who can, who can uh, get to functioning well enough to be stable and contribute to society. And we will never know if they're gone. And so we need to meet people where they are um, when they're willing to take any step toward recovery, not just for humanitarian reasons, because that's probably the human right human thing to do, but also because we, we don't know what they'll become. And I think that, you know, there were, there, there were so many, there were so many, uh, uh things that people, um, did for me, um, you know, and so many things in the community that I access, even I, I remember going to NA and AA meetings when I was thinking about getting clean and sober and I was high at the meetings, but I was there. Right. So I wasn't always ready to take those steps, but you know, whatever, whatever we can do to help pe- pe- keep people alive until, they're in the hope that they'll make a decision to, to change for the positive. We don't know what the long-term outcome for that person will be. And so it's really important to me that we use every means necessary to keep people alive so that, you know, they can meet their potential, you know, they can grow and meet their potential. Yeah. And, and, in saying that, that doesn't mean that, that we don't set boundaries. Of course not. And that there's not consequences for, of course not or out of control behavior? Of course not. You know, the, I, I mentioned this in another podcast I talked to you, uh, you know, that we talked about is, you know, how, how law enforcement putting me in cuffs, like really protected the community and saved me on multiple occasions. Right. Like, yeah. so we have, we have protections in place, you know, in, in the community when things get, you know, out of control, but we also need to take um, every approach necessary. So, I mean, to me, fentanyl test strips with fentanyl being a danger is, is great. Um, if, if somebody's willing to, um, you know, use, uh, you know, clean needles instead of, you know, needles that aren't clean, that, that that's great. If, and, and, you know, um, these supervised injection sites that are very controversial, like, um, do I want somebody um, injecting and potentially dying by themselves on the street? Or do I want them to go do it supervised where they can actually talk to a counselor? They can actually talk to a physician. They can actually get some education. They can get some Narcan yeah, is it is it ideal? Does it does it kind of look horrible? 
likened is you know to to the average person that looks at this like yeah do we really want it, want to because it looks like we're co-signing something when in reality right, right. we're just putting them in proximity to where th- there's other services and they can access some level of, of treatment or referral to treatment fr- from that place so yeah. But but let me say, but wait, yeah. I want, but I don't want my tax dollars, right? I mean, okay. I'm working hard to go to pay for that, right? right. Who's going to pay for, I mean, that's the next, that's the next step. But, but then I, I mean. Your tax that, dollars are going to go to deal with the people that may be, you know, suffering functional impairments and being homeless on the streets and continuing in, continuing in, in crime rather than getting a referral to treatment when they're ready um, so that they can go and actually stop that lifestyle and that saves yeah. taxpayer dollars. So it really depends on how you, how you look at it. And, you know, I, <laughs> I, I understand, I understand the uh, controversial nature of this. I really do. You know, I'm, I'm pretty conservative by nature. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm involved in church and like a lot of the, uh, a lot of resistance from this seems to come fr- from that community because they don't really want to, you know, co-sign this. But I think that um, really it's just one more measure that we can do to uh, help people stay alive so that, you know, they can, you know, meet their potential so that well, they can and, actually eventually contribute to society. And, and and let me say, since I've, I had never heard of some of these groups yeah. before, but, but since I've become I- involved in the community, uh, and I, I went to my first uh, celebrate recovery meeting, yeah. you know, the other day. And so I do see churches as yeah. as taking a a big step. Just churches, just uh, I think admitting and realizing, yeah. you know, because uh, people with addictions are in every facet of society. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just whether or not they're getting treatment, whether or not they can talk about it. And now, if there's a road that people that that are in church can can go, and they can still have the the, the great experience that they want to have in, in a church setting, but still talk about the, their addictions and still get help for that. I mean, what a great, what, yeah. a, what, I mean, it's just, it's, it's mind blowing that again, that it took so long for, for us to say that, you know, again, again, I'm, I'm being facetious, sure. but from my evangelical, you know, roots to say, well, wait, you mean God still cares about even the addict? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's so, it's so ridiculous to say that. Yeah. Of course, if you believe in God and you believe in grace and you believe in, yeah. Uh, you, you know th- these things then you know he does yeah r- right and 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 again and his forgiveness isn't just one time but uh, again as the story goes it's you know multiple multiple times yeah well I mean, and 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 god it was the ultimate answer and solution for this and we'll talk about my book at the end but he was the ultimate answer and solution for for, for me and for like millions of other people in recovery when when er- earlier in the century before uh you know they, they didn't know what to do with addiction um, the medical community didn't want anything to do with it. And so so the churches and ministries were the ones out helping people with, with addiction. You know, it wasn't, it, there was no medical model for addiction at that point, right? right. It, was all, it was always a spiritual approach. And out of that came, you know, the 12-step movements. And, and uh, Bill Wilson, um, you know, was part of the Christian Oxford group. And that's where all of those principles came from to begin with. So, yeah, I mean, the churches should be on the forefront of, of, of doing everything, you know, related to recovery, but all of these harm reduction approaches that we're talking about that may not sit well with, you know, religious leaders, to me, they're, they're common grace. They're, they're just things we make available to everybody to try to keep them alive, you know, and, and from a Christian perspective, maybe, uh, you know, a pastor gets a chance to talk to that person if they're not dead, 
right? Yes. Uh, about yes. God. And maybe that makes the difference for them. I mean, in my own story, uh, you know, uh, it, it, for people that, that read my book, you will see that pastors came across my path time and time and time and time again. Um, but it, it wouldn't have been able to happen if I was dead. Right. And, and there wasn't, you know, other means to, to help keep me alive so that they could talk to me and get that message, which ultimately, you know, saved my life. The gospel saved my life in prison in 2006. So I think that we need to take every approach. Yeah. Um, you know, churches are, are very, very critical in this. And, um, but what about the people that don't really want to go to church? Well, AA and NA don't take a, 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 a denominational or religious stance. They just call it a spiritual program. So, so maybe somebody starts there. Right. Right. Um, and maybe that's more an acceptable community for them. Right. That's why Bill Wilson did that. He, you know, he, he didn't say come to our church. He's like, no, I'm going to create something that is generally talks about spiritual principles so that people can connect to it um, in, in a general way. And, and, you know, I'm sure that even back then the churches didn't like that idea, you know what I mean? But it drew people and it became a worldwide phenomenon and tons of people have, right. have found recovery right. in that, right? Yeah. So no, no, that's uh that's uh that's fantastic. And and uh you know, again, uh brother, I could I could go ahead and, and talk about this sure. forever and we will we'll have we'll have more conver- we'll have more conversations about this. As as we wrap things up uh today and we'll call this our introduction and then we'll again have have more conversations okay. about this um just speak briefly if, if someone wanted to learn more about this if this challenged the way that someone thought about how things had to be and about other potential ways that that people can be introduced to recovery is there something that you would recommend that they that they read that they look into or a website that yeah. they look about? Where would you, where would yeah. you send them? So, if you wanted to learn about the concept of harm reduction specifically, um, the the National Harm Reduction Coalition. If you Google that, um, you can go there and learn about it. Um, SAMHSA website, um, uh, Substance Use and Mental Health Service Administration, um, but. My favorite website to learn about all aspects of recovery, um, pathways to recovery, they talk about all the evidence-based clinical aspects of recovery. We mm-hmm. call that, um, you, you know, the, um, you know, clinical pathway. And then there's the non-clinical pathway, and it talks about, you know, church and meetings and other things in the community. And then self-recovery, um, the I think it's put out through Harvard University. It's called um, the Recovery Research Institute. Mm. And you can go there and learn about, Everything you ever wanted to know about addiction and recovery is on that one site. It's actually a really amazing site. Well, and say that again. Yeah, it's called the uh, it's called the Recovery Research Institute, I believe. Um, so I'll give you the website, Jim, to put on to put out there on your on your website. Oh, okay, cool. Um, but it's it's really it's really good because it doesn't just talk about treatment generally. It talks about very specific approaches. It'll tell you what cognitive behavioral therapy is, relapse prevention. It'll talk about contingency management. It'll talk about motivational interviewing. It'll talk about all of these different aspects that we do clinically, but then it'll talk about the other resources in the community that have also been helpful toward people that that so people some people need to go through through uh, formalized treatment, but even the ones that go through formalized treatment when they get out of treatment have to develop a lifestyle of recovery. So there has to be things out here in the community, right? right? Um, I, I I heard um, I think it was um, I'm 
trying to remember who, who said this, but they said that the effects of treatment deteriorate over time. In other words, treatment only, if you gauge treatment and then you don't build a lifestyle recovery when you get out, those effects of treatment mm. deteriorate over time. You forget about them, and then that puts you at risk for relapse. So we want people to engage recovery communities. We want them to get further educated because um, if they aren't engaging a, a recovery community or a church community or something like that, who, who are they going? Who, who are they likely to go back to? And what are they right, likely to right. go back to when stress comes up? Um, recovery is not should not be done in isolation. Right. Uh, well, Never. I've often heard it said it's like you take the you you put someone in treatment and you, and you take the drugs away, and now you've just left this empty hole. And if you don't fill it with something, they're going to go back to what's what's common. Well, if they go back home, it's their old friends, it's their old habits, it's the old the, the same things that kind of perhaps was the driver of, of, of that addiction in the first place. Well, yeah, and, and you, you, you expose yourself to people who have been successful in doing this for long periods of time, right? Um, so a lot of times, uh, you know, I'll come into contact with people in early recovery, and they're like, well, how did you stay clean and sober so long? And I'm like, well, I you know, built protections around my life for my own safety, number one, and I do things to promote my own health. And so I developed this concept of my five-point life, for example, where I do, I have spiritual devotion, I exercise, you know, I, I pursue my vocational purposes, leisure and family time, and then ongoing learning. Those are my parameters that I try to do daily or weekly to try to keep myself in a good spot. And those actually take up a lot of my time. So I don't really have time for anything Perfect. else. Right. And so I, I kind of like built myself into a, a sheep pen, <laughs> so to speak, especially in early recovery. Cause I felt so vulnerable. I thought, well, I really need to make sure that like, but in not just like pinning myself in and isolating it, you know, it was, it was kind of like, um, d- doing things, um, that, that helped keep me, uh, uh, um, healthy. So like it's, you know, my own family has been important in that process. I have friends, I mentored people, I did, you know, volunteer service and stuff like that. But, um, you know, being healthy and, and, and pursuing, I didn't get clean and sober just to get clean and sober. I got clean and sober because I had dreams and aspirations and being addicted was a barrier to what I wanted to achieve. So once I was clean and sober, I started to slowly try to achieve those things. And I think that's also important in early recovery. I didn't want, um, you know, I didn't want my sobriety to be my only badge of achievement in life. Right. Right. I wanted, I wanted more for my life. I wanted the life that everyone else wants, you know, I wanted a healthy right. family and I wanted those types of things in my life. And so, um, when, you know, in my recovery process, when I finally got to a place of healthy functioning, that's what I pursued. And I think that's what recovery is about. And, um, in pursuing that we become not only, um, useful citizens, but significant contributors when we get clean and sober. And that's why I named my book better than well, because there's a uh, saying in recovery that when we recover, we get better than well. All right. So, and, and so let's end there. You have a book that's uh, just been published just recently. Yeah, it's actually right. out tomorrow on print. It comes out tomorrow in print. And then the um, it's being uh, the audio uh, it's going to come out on Audible probably in beginning of November. Wow. And the and it's e- ebook's been out for a while. Better Than Well. Yeah. Better Than Well, uh, One Man's Miraculous Journey Through Childhood Trauma, Mental Health Issues, Addiction, and, um, you know, to Joy and Contentment and Incarceration to Joy and Contentment. So, it, you know, working in this space, um, I, I, I recognize that there are a lot of different pathways to recovery. 
and we talk about those generally, right? Um, and and so I said, you know what? Uh, my life's a, a, a case study, so I'm going to write a book and talk, and so so people could see how um, significant, you know, uh, childhood trauma contri- contributed to emotional issues in my life that then that then ultimately led my life, you know, and, and exposure to drugs and alcohol ultimately developed you know, addictions that took my life completely off course that ultimately led to, you know, psychiatric hospitals and jails and prisons. And which is characteristic of, of, of this problem of addiction for, for a lot of people, but then also how I recovered. So, you know, in in my case, it, it, it took, it took a lot to get where I'm at today. Um, but people know me in, in my role working in secular spaces with the county and all that kind of stuff, but they don't know the spiritual side of my story and how it actually happened. And so I decided that I was going to um, write a book that kind of laid my whole story out there in the hope that um, it would it would find its way into the hands of people that would benefit sure. from it and family members who trying to understand what their right. <laughs> addicted loved ones right. are going What's through. Going well, well, um, brother, maybe we can have you back and, yeah. and we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, sure. a, a little bit, uh, a little bit deeper and a little more and, uh, man, great success with that. I, I wish for you for sure. All right. And, um, uh, Michael, so, so thankful that you were able to talk with us today about this very important subject. And, and again, I, it, this is not a, this is not a, a one-off conversation. No. Uh, this is something that we'll continue to, approach. And if, if anyone listening out there, if you have questions that you would like to uh, go to our website at uh, Zachary Horton foundation.org and uh, uh, send in questions and you would like for uh, uh, me to discuss with Michael again at our next meeting, we'd be happy to happy to do that. Uh, I always say just because just because I think something doesn't mean that I'm right yeah. about it. Yeah. I always shoot to have the best I once heard this said about science. It's, it's the the best incorrect answer we have right now, right? And so that's how, yeah. that's how I think. I, yeah. you know, I'm, I I obviously make the best decisions that I can, and I think the best given the information that I have. But I'm always getting new information, and uh, every time that I speak with you, I get a lot of new information. Well, so I, I love I, that. And I would say this in in ending um, that you know all of us come from uh, may come from this from from a, a different opinion or philosophical standpoint. Um, I just don't think it does a lot of good with this issue of addiction to stay entrenched. We need to stay open-minded enough to have these conversations to actually come up with, with viable solutions because our community is being devastated by, yes. by, by drugs and alcohol. So. Right, right. Awesome. Well, with that, we'll say uh, goodbye for today. And as always, uh, find someone in your life uh, today. Go to them. Tell them that you love them. This is Zach's dad. This has been an episode of Zach's Life. Thank you so much for listening. For more info on our foundation and for addiction resources, visit ZacharyHortonFoundation.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a story to tell and want to be a guest on our podcast, email me directly at jim at ZacharyHortonFoundation.org.